and the name that makes it happen No further introduction to the man that's worth tracking City's clapping for his relentless backing A vasty against the former team that just went packing While they're slacking and other hosts are lacking He tells it like it is on issues that nobody's tackling While he's racking, the ones who keep on grappling The listeners, some followers who get it, keep on stacking Great friend, and the type to set a trend President to see where haters with the men, there's no pretend 17 years, he along with Pierce Entertaining Southern Kelly, backed by popular demand Intense for the listeners to resonate To the hottest topics of the day, check the resume While some local leaders seem to lack the unity My man uses his voice to do what's best for the community Westwood One, catch him on the sidelines Reporting live, what we later see in highlights No holds barred, just like on his timeline Sun filter podcast, no need to follow guidelines Meet any criteria, dropping bombs like Syria Touching down, all around, connected like Expedia Coming to your speakers live from the city, yo Bestie, welcome to the Scott Kaplan Media Great friends, welcome to our final episode of the Scott Kaplan Solo Podcast for 2018. So this is episode 45, and I actually cannot believe we've really done 45 episodes of this podcast in our first year, and what a great learning experience it's been from a an on-air interviewer perspective. There's been a lot of learning. And from a business of what the future of podcasting is and how to eventually monetize it or maximize the monetization, a lot of learning has happened, at least for me, this year. But you can't learn this kind of stuff if you don't have people who want the content. So for everybody that, that downloads these podcasts, shares them, tells your friends about them, communicates to me about them... Whatever it is, thank you very much, because this has been a great year for this. Um, I needed this podcast this year, because when you're going through a divorce, like I've been going through, and you've got four kids, and you have started a new business, you're doing, I feel like I'm doing those things because, man, I'm trying to get away from the problem over here. And so... This has been a really phenomenal year, and we come to episode 45, and we end the year by discussing the end of an era. Jim Lampley is the greatest boxing announcer of all time. I'm not really sure how I can quantify that, but if you ask anybody in the world of boxing over the last 50 years, who is the recognized pound-for-pound heavyweight champion of all boxing announcers It's Jim Lampley. When you think big fights, you think Jim Lampley. When you think HBO Sports, you think Jim Lampley. For me, it's a slightly different relationship. Jim Lampley has been a great mentor and friend to me and someone who I love and respect because the beauty of Jim Lampley is Jim Lampley is a very real human being. He may be a big TV star and he may get to be in movies and play himself all the time, And he may have been hyper successful calling Olympics and hosting shows during the Olympics and all this HBO boxing stuff and everything that he's done as a trailblazer in the broadcast industry. The beauty of Jim Lampley is he's got scars and he's very happy to talk about them. It's not what we talk about today. We talk about the end of the era of HBO boxing. You don't have to be a a huge boxing fan to have seen Jim Lampley call fights because 
Big fights that Jim calls are event fights. They're pay-per-views. They're at people's houses for parties. They're on in bars. You, people are getting together for the big fight. Jim Lampley's calling that fight. But HBO is done. They're done with the boxing industry. They have been the leader in boxing for 45 years. In fact, without HBO, I don't even know what boxing would be today. But it turns out, as we'll hear with this interview with Jim, HBO needed the fighters more than the fighters needed HBO. See, I thought the fighters needed HBO, and I think they did. But again, this is back to the whole year, the theme of the year, things changing, things moving. HBO, pay-per-view, subscription, cable television is changing because of the internet, streaming, individual deal-making possibilities, everybody trying to max out what they're worth, eliminate the middleman, changing world. So here's Jim Lampley. And I had no idea going into this. I should have known this. I didn't. Episode 45 of the Scott Kaplan Solo Podcast coincides with about two weeks ago when Jim signed off on HBO Sports, 45 years of HBO boxing. And so we, we this is really quite fitting. So just to wrap up these initial thoughts and give you this interview with Jim Lampley from Jim's home in Del Mar, California. I want to thank all the sponsors who were with us this whole year, starting with Gorilla Movers. You know, I think I told everybody I moved in April and it sucked because I was dealing with a crazy situation. And again, I've mentioned divorce and how that domino falls and others do as well. And Gorilla Movers was there once again to be the absolute pros, making life easy. Gorilla Movers. You can visit their website, GorillaMovers.com. My friends at the Brigantine Family of Restaurants. By the way, we were down on the radio show about a week ago um, in downtown at the Embarcadero in downtown San Diego, and it is going to just grow. And I see Miguel's and the Brigantine and all this signage for what's going to be built on the Embarcadero. And the Brigantine is San Diego. And so to see those guys get those locations, amazing. And so congratulations to my friends from the Brigantine and what a great year it's been to have them on board. And then, of course, Callaway Golf, always Callaway Golf. Even this year during the holiday season, it was back to CallawayGolf.com. That's where you can get gifts for golfers. And giving someone a gift who is a golfer, whether it's golf balls, a golf shirt, a golf hat, a golf glove, whatever it may be, the gift of golf is what a golfer wants. And that's what I was doing this holiday season with Callaway Golf and our friends up at Callaway in Carlsbad. Without further ado, I didn't know how I was going to end the year, and I kept saying all along that these stories find me, I don't find them. Jim Lampley signed off at HBO Sports, and I said, that's a dear close friend of mine, a mentor of mine. I want to hear more about this. Obviously, I called Jim. Can I come over and sit down and talk to you? Me, Jim, his wife, Deborah. Allison, who was there shooting video and you know pumping it out all over Instagram and, and Twitter, the four of us. And here's the conversation with the legendary boxing voice, Jim Lampley, to discuss HBO and their departure from the world of boxing. An individual chair, I have, I have sovereignty here. <laughs> you, on the other hand, any number of people. I've got a big couch. Sofa, That's right. If they wanted to. So no, you like you like that? What a beautiful mic clip! Yeah, that's really impressive. So Deborah and I went to. Did she tell you about the party we went to Saturday night? No, tell me. My friend Dave we're, Gilbert. We're, we're Do you know Dave Gilbert? I don't think so. So Dave Gilbert is the uh, founder and chairman of uh, a company called uh, National Funding Company. 
and he's made tons and tons and tons of money, and he does large, elaborate, generous things, and he threw his company holiday party in Petco Park Saturday night. Oh, nice. And, uh, for you know, there are three or four or five hundred of us rattling around inside chilly Petco Park, and the entertainment that he hired was a... I believe I'm correct in saying a rapper named Flo Rida. Flo Rida. Flo Rida. Yeah. And another rapper named Warren G. Yeah, Warren G. Regular. So Deborah and I are standing there watching the Flo Rida show. And um, I've seen some hip-hop type shows in the past. <laughs> but this was the one that was most graphic and demonstrating to me. What an incredible physical effort it is to do that stuff. I mean, start with the fact that you're trying to jam... 50 pounds of words into a 20 pound bag <laughs> at maximum volume and at the same time you're dancing energetically right and this guy's built like an nfl defensive lineman at nfl defensive lineman size and he's got dancers around him on the stage etc and it's abundantly clear that he's the boss he's the choreographer he's the uh, executive producer everything about this is controlled by him and i'm I'm watching this and I'm remembering that at a party you came to mm -hmm. before I went to Beijing in this house in 2008, I stood on those stairs and attempted to do. I know it. In karaoke. I saw it. Lose yourself. Right. Eminem. Yeah. And Eminem's Eminem's rap style is far more sort of lyrical and forgiving than what uh, Flo Rida does. And, and I remember literally falling off those steps in exhaustion right. with maybe 20, 30 seconds still to go in Lose Yourself because I just couldn't keep up with the effort necessary to do all this. And I've been doing nothing but talking my whole life, right? You would think that if somebody should be able to talk nonstop as I'm doing right now without any interruption, that that would be me, but I was floored by Lose Yourself. I couldn't get through 30 seconds of what Flo Rida did for about an hour. Uh, and I mean, it just gave me this unbelievable appreciation that rapping should be an Olympic event. <laughs> and to think that way back at the beginning, my boxing broadcast partner, Max Kellerman, had a powerful urge to be a rapper. So. There we go. All right. Well, that was the that was the prelude to our uh, podcast together. Well, I'm so happy that we're doing this now because it's the end of 2018, right? And this is my 45th and final podcast of the year. I can't believe I've done 45 of these. It's taken a lot of time and effort. What a poetic number! It's a good number. It's a really. Do you good realize number. what's poetic about that Tell number? Me. No. HBO's boxing franchise lasted for 45 years. So I just said goodbye nine days ago, Saturday night, uh, December uh, 8, to a franchise that lasted 45 years. And you are now inviting me to be a guest on your 45th podcast of the year. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't How does know. the universe do those things? <laughs> you know, there is definitely a connectivity in the universe, whether we want to recognize it or not. And it is inherent in a number like that. Yeah, that's I should so have. Congratulations known on your 45. Podcast. Well, thank you. Congratulations on 45 years at, at HBO. I watched the um, the close to the show that night, and I don't even have any idea how you got through that. Well, um, it was interesting because I. Uh, you know my emotional structure. 
And you know that when I feel strongly and deeply about something, it's very difficult for me to, I hate this part of my broadcast career, <laughs> but it, it's common enough that um, there was a social media expectation going into this event among the boxing fans on social media that, uh-huh, Jim isn't going to be able to make it through this without <laughs> uh, at some point, you know, revealing his heart. And, uh, and so the part of the close that you watched that I was very deeply concerned about from a performance standpoint was the four names of people who are already dead and who met a great deal to the telecast. As I said in that particular close, just the very mention of their names is still enough to elicit tears from people in our, uh, in our group. And uh, so I practiced for several days saying those four names, Gordy Sager, Paul Hoggett, Emmanuel Stewart, Artie Curry, in such a way as to try to reduce them to agate type, so to speak, and not to feel what inevitably I'm going to feel when I think about those four people, because I figured that was the big stumbling block. And I kind of got through that part. You know, I, there's a little catch on my voice uh, on Paul Hoggett because somebody had brought the leather jacket that he owned, and he's been dead about 12 years, and somebody had brought his own HBO boxing leather jacket and put it on the back of my chair that night, uh, which kind of, you know, reopened the wound in a, a tender who, way, who was et cetera. He? Who was Paul? I'm sorry for not Paul Hoggett was our ringside audio assist for more than 20 years. And when I say... Um, this is something I said at a crew meal Friday night to say goodbye to people before the actual boxing. When I say that Paul was ringside audio assists, that's like saying that Da Vinci was an artist. You know, it's accurate, but it doesn't get anywhere close to the whole story. And you're talking about, and you've worked with people like this, you're talking about somebody who saw his job in all of its implications. So yes, he was a ringside audio assist. But he was also an ancillary stage manner. He was an ancillary security guard. He was an ancillary public relations man for HBO Boxing. He was uh, kind of the mayor of the ringside scene. There was no local boxing official in the country who did not know Paul because he went out of his way to get to know everybody face to face so that he would have the leverage, for instance, at the end of the telecast, if somebody inadvertently wanted to walk through our camera shot, that he could put his hands on their chest and say, uh-uh. You don't do that. Uh, and he always understood that in order to be in that position, he had to deal with them from a human perspective. And to sum all that up, he was incredible. You know, he was one of those people um, whom you rarely meet. And he meant a lot to me because he put my microphone and earphones on uh, every, every telecast and he took them off at the end of the telecast and he was, he was sort of the first face I would see when I went to ringside, was the last face I would see before I left. And uh, in every telecast crew, you've got 30, 40, 50, 60 people and there are two, of, two or three of them who are attached to everybody in some way and that was Paul for us. So that was why he was one of the four names uh, and, and I, my like I say, I don't know that my voice would have caught trying to say Paul Hoggett if somebody had not put his leather jacket on the back of my chair. Yeah, and, and then, uh, but the point I'm trying to make is I got through the four names and what I underestimated was what would happen when I got to the very last line about we thank the fighters. And when I said the fighters, I lost it, you know. 
because over the years I realized that the thing I'll miss about the boxing telecast the most is not calling the fights, but Friday afternoon sitting in a room watching those guys come in, sit down in front of me face to face for 20, 30 minutes and lay out their lives, tell me who they are and give me their inner reality going into the fight. And um, in 30 years of calling HBO Boxing, I have seen and heard every culture in the world through the voices of those fighters. You know, because of the fighters, I feel like I've been to the darkest, hardest parts of Russia, Sergei Kovalev and Ruslan Provodikov. I've been to Kazakhstan with Gennady Golovkin. I've been to the roughest, most impoverished parts of the Philippines over and over with Manny Pacquiao uh, and on and on and on. Uh, and, you know, I always say, I, I make the point, it's the most self-revealing sport. Uh, it's the most human sport. It's the sport that tells people more about their limitations as well as their strengths than any other. So I have a very, very deep emotional attachment to the fighters. That will go on for as long as I live, whether I ever call a fight again uh, or not. And, uh, and that was why I cracked up uh, at the very end of, of that dissertation. Uh, and fortunately, only seconds before I was leading to the 11-minute closing video montage uh, that amply illustrated all the things I'm saying about who the fighters are and what they teach us. So it's been less than two weeks since that final broadcast. Yep. Have you had a chance to just sit back a little bit because you know how people interview athletes and they say things to a great quarterback they say how do you want to be remembered you know but I'm thinking you got to do something from the beginning to the end so while it seems sad on some levels that HBO is getting out of the boxing business what's really interesting is to have been there from the beginning all the way to the very end so when I think of an end of an era you know, people talk about a coaching era. He had 15 years as the coach. Or when, when Belichick retires, he would have had, let's say, 20 years as a coach. You had all these years with HBO Boxing. And you said at the end, it was the pinnacle. I mean, if you're a comedian, you want a one-hour special on HBO. If you're a boxing announcer, HBO is the place to be. So I'm wondering, as sad as it may seem on some level, what it's like nine or ten days later when you think about the greatness that you were a part of. And by the way, the face and the voice of. First, let me make one parenthetical point, which you'll certainly understand and appreciate because we're both members of the same fraternity. And as members of the same fraternity, we've had both the same experiences up and down. Um, it isn't totally continuous because the franchise lasted for 45 years and I was there for the last 30 of those years. But for 15 years before I became the host of HBO Boxing, Barry Tompkins, who is a friend and a broadcaster I respect, was the host of that telecast. Now, I've had jobs taken away from me because the employer wanted someone else to do it. Barry had his role as host of HBO Boxing taken away from him 
because HBO wanted me to do it. There was a logical reason at the time, which was that Mike Tyson's first several television exposures were at ABC, and I was the fight caller at ABC at that time. So my voice was somewhat linked in the public mind to Tyson and, and his experience. And when Tyson came to HBO, uh, I know that management at HBO was thinking, wow, would, would it be more galvanizing for the audience and more appropriate if we had Lampley's voice covering Tyson because there's a continuous thread there as opposed to Barry's. And oh, by the way, I had had a lot of exposure, Olympics and college football and otherwise at ABC. And Barry had mostly been known as the boxing host at HBO, which was not as huge an entity in the culture uh, at that time as ultimately it became. But I mentioned him first in that uh, post-fight speech because I've always been conscious in my heart over the years that I wouldn't have wanted to be Barry Tompkins when they took him out of that gig and replaced him with me. Just as I didn't like being replaced in two or three different roles uh, at NBC Sports and ABC Sports, and ironically, when I was first assigned to cover boxing at ABC Sports, it was because an incoming division boss wanted to get rid of me, wanted to make me so uncomfortable that I would walk away from an existing guaranteed contract and thought that I would hate boxing and that I would not fit the sport at all and that was a good way to get rid of me. The irony was he didn't know that boxing was my favorite sport. Nobody in that division knew that boxing was my favorite sport and the reason for that was that Howard Cosell had called boxing all the years that I worked at ABC Sports. And I had it in my head that if I walked into the building at 1336th Avenue and said the word boxing, I would be instantly beheaded uh, <laughs> because of Howard's natural protectiveness about his own turf. So, uh, so that's point one, is that, you know, in reality, 15 years of Barry and then my 30 years, and it's only logical that most of the audience thinks of HBO Boxing as Jim Lamplin. That's a long, a long period of time. Um, and as I've said in a, in a couple of other places, um, I had a deep, deep desire when I came to HBO to work for HBO, not because of boxing per se, but because it was HBO and because you didn't have to lead to commercial. And I could easily see that this was going to become the artistic height of television, that this network would win more awards in more different areas, including sports, than, uh, than other networks possibly could. Uh, because when, when you don't have to worry uh, on Saturday night about whether the advertising executive who runs the Chevrolet or the discount tire account is going to call your boss on Monday for something controversial that you might say, when you know that you're free to say anything controversial, because this is purely about the network's relationship to its subscribers and not about some middleman providing the money who worries about imagery, et cetera, et cetera, then you, you have a great deal bigger chance to actually go on the air and, and produce the truth with conviction. That's what I wanted. That's what HBO gave me. And oh, by the way, boxing is a truth teller sport. In other, in other sports, there are very powerful leagues and surrounding structures, which also bring a certain pressure for a higher level of public relations, uh, a prettier picture. And in boxing, you start with outrage and go down from there. So it's much easier to tell the truth in boxing than it is if you're covering NFL football or Major League Baseball or NBA basketball. Um, so 
So that's a lot of what I treasure about my 30 years at HBO is that I worked at the network where I wanted to work. I never led to a single commercial. <laughs> uh, and I, I feel very strongly that I got to tell the truth and I got to tell the truth uh, far more freely and without interference than would have been the case if I had continued to work in the other places that I had worked. You know, there are uh, 14 full years of my broadcasting career prior to HBO. There are five Olympics in there. There are seven years of hosting the college football telecast in the studio. There are several years of hosting Wide World of Sports. So I had a great deal of experience at the height, but there were specific reasons why I wanted HBO, and I got it. And I was able to thrive in that privilege for a long time. And I never once lost the sense that it was tough to be Barry Tompkins. And if I ever got a chance to, in any way, slightly make it up to him, I would do that. And that was why that closing soliloquy nine days ago began with the words, Barry Tompkins. Wow. So, so we're all a part of the same fraternity. Yeah. I, and I love Barry Tompkins and I can remember being a kid. He's one of the nicest people in the world. Yeah. He was, and he was a good, really good fight, fight announcer, but very good fight announcer and still calling fights to this day, which by the way, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, that, so there's an irony for you. Okay. So let me ask this because this is, I think what, what most people would want to try and understand if HBO is the leader in boxing for 45 years yes. and you see that last 11 minutes and you see all the history of how HBO has covered the fight game over over this period of time why is it now what in your maybe what you know or at least your opinion what, what has changed so drastically that hbo no longer wants to be in the fight business now you know um if you're a reader of the new york times or the washington post or the la times you understand their meaning and importance as institutions in the newspaper world and if you're conscious of everything that's going on in mass media you've watched for the last 10 years, the way they have scrambled to try to readjust their positions as uh, information deliverers, to try to maintain their relevance and their audience in a world in which everything around them is changing. Mm -hmm. uh, and now they're at least as dependent on the internet to proliferate their message as they are on the printed page. And who knows at what point the printed page goes away. Um, so it's no different in television. Uh, it's no different in radio. You've seen this and we're being a part of this at this very moment right. by sitting here doing something, mm -hmm. a podcast right. that didn't exist uh, six, seven, eight years ago. So the bottom line is the landscape in boxing uh, has changed dramatically in terms of the interplay between the audience, the television entity that delivers the, uh, the fights and the fighters themselves. And because it's an entrepreneurial sport, because every event is built from its own foundation and is somewhat like a feature film or a snowflake, they all come together from uh, chemical factors and not necessarily uh, as the result of some continuous structure. I always say uh, sports like uh, NFL football, Major League Baseball, NBA basketball, they are about abundance and regularity. A schedule is published prior to the season. We know when the Warriors are going to play the Cavaliers, on which date, and we know what happens to those two teams before and after. None of that exists in boxing. Boxing is about irregularity and scarcity. That's why it married so perfectly 
to premium pay cable television. That's why the two dominant telecast entities in boxing for more than 30 years, maybe more than 40 years, were HBO and Showtime. Because premium pay cable television is more about scarcity and irregularity than it is about abundance and regularity. Yes, Game of Thrones has a telecast schedule, but it repeats. Uh, it's a varying pattern. Uh, it goes away after the end of a season, and you don't know when the next season is going to begin. All of that is inherent in premium pay cable television, as is the Beyonce special or, you know, some documentary that comes up uh, once in a blue moon, etc. Uh, it's, it's a different structure in the relationship between the deliverer and the audience than has been the case for uh, network television, which marries perfectly to regularly scheduled continuous sports mm -hmm. like the ones I had named for you previously, again, abundance and regularity. So within all of that, Within the past few years, you have the addition of streaming services, mm -hmm. um, and streaming services can be conducted both by subscription. There's a new service called DAZN, which requires a monthly subscription. Uh, there's a new service called ESPN Plus, which requires a monthly subscription. Or you can set up an individual pay-per-view event on uh, a streaming service, and it creates the opportunity for managers and promoters to establish uh, economic niches for the fighters that are more consistent and more predictable than what they get on premium pay cable, potentially with a larger license fee. Canelo Alvarez just signed with a service called DAZN, and I know very few people who figured out how to buy and access DAZN at this point. And I and don't think just, the commercials are, because you've seen the television commercials, that they're not descriptive enough. All it is is Canelo saying a word or two. And, you know, frankly, he just doesn't have the charisma, let's say. Um, and he, I still don't think he has the recognizability compared to, you know, LeBron James, Tiger Woods. Like, well, I think Michael Buffer's more recognizable. And that's that why he's in the, in the, the commercials to, to draw attention to sort of the aura and the glamour of it all. Um, but DAZN just gave to Canelo Alvarez an 11-fight deal for $368 million, which is the largest talent contract in the history of sports. So that alone is enough to show you what is the perceived potential of these new platforms and how they apply and relate to boxing. Uh, so that left HBO for the past two years in an increasingly tenuous rights position. It was getting harder and harder and harder for our network to hold on to the fighters who matter and uh, to make the fights uh, that matter. And the most graphic example is uh, we groomed and built on our network the images of both Terence Crawford and Vasily Lomachenko, both of them promoted by top-ranked promotions. And top-ranked promotions, after years and years and years of being the primary talent provider for HBO, made a decision, you know what? We're tired of programming to a small select audience of people who are willing to buy a monthly subscription on a premium pay cable service. We're going to cast our lot with the largest sports production platform in the world, ESPN, where more viewers in more nations can see our product than is the case with any other broadcast provider. So now Terrence Crawford and Vasily Lomachenko just happen to be the number one and two pound for pound fighters in the world in whichever order you want to rank them. And they both appear on ESPN or ESPN Plus. 
uh, with top rank. But um, why didn't HBO decide then to either acquire a company that was going into the streaming world or or just get into it themselves they already had the brand and it always would occur to me that the fighters needed hbo more than hbo needed the fighters and what i'm hearing you say now is is that everything changed because of the streaming services and really just overall just the internet i don't want to put my name behind this as my individual observation because it's just something i have read in other media uh but i have read in other media that uh executives at our company have said or information has leaked to the effect that there is research that indicates that whereas once boxing was a strong attraction for people to buy a subscription, it is no longer as strong an attraction for people to buy a subscription. And at the end of the day, in any entertainment property, HBO is going to invest if it's seen as a stimulant for people to buy subscriptions. And if the profile of that property as a stimulant to uh, get people to buy subscriptions begins to drop or slip, then there's less incentive for the network to buy it. So again, what I've read in other media is that there's research that indicates that it's not as big a stimulant anymore uh, for people to buy subscriptions. You could Which also really speculate. You could also speculate, as some people do, that uh, the new owner of HBO, AT and T, has a different view of how it all plays out and what the relationship with the audience should be than Time Warner on its own used to have. But I don't know that that's the case either, and I certainly don't want to identify that as my observation. But um, what's really interesting, as you talk about a changing media world is when you go back 30 years to the beginning of what you talked about, which is Tyson was becoming a big star. Your voice had already been linked to Tyson fights. Back then, if we wanted to see Mike Tyson and hear Jim Lampley call Mike Tyson fights, we had to have a subscription to HBO. Correct. Whereas now, what I'm hearing you say is, is that executives, whoever they may be, have decided there is no longer that desire for this content on this platform. Why is Canelo worth $368 million to DAZN? Because number one, exclusivity. If you want to see Canelo, you must buy a subscription subscription to DAZN. Uh That's the reality that's being presented here. And it's the position of DAZN and a lot of other people in the sport that Canelo is the most identifiable and marketable and high impact fighter in the world from a, uh, from a, a commercial standpoint. So, uh, so there's a powerful incentive there for the streaming service to pay a price for Canelo's services that neither HBO nor Showtime nor any television entity would ever pay. Uh, and that's a unique circumstance relative to the development of a new business. And oh, by the way, it's a global business. And one of the reasons, if you ask me why did ESPN suddenly decide upon a big emphasis on boxing as opposed to having paid relatively short shrift to it for years and years and years. Um, I would say to you that that answer is that ESPN over time under the governance of Disney has realized that they aren't a national business. They're a global business. And if you want to move the meter in every capital around the world, there are only two sports that do that. One is soccer and the other is boxing. And you can build heroes faster in boxing and you promote nationalized identification and cultural identification with the athlete faster in boxing 
than with any other sport. And that's, when, that's what's been underappreciated by most American television entities up until now. But now you have a landscape in which, again, the incentives for things like these streaming services, and to a certain degree for ESPN because it's global, have gone way up. And, and their desire and incentive to be programming boxing has gone way up with it. So I would have to go do some research on this, and I will because I'm now really, really curious. Everybody who's listening to this is going to go, what is DAZN? I've seen the commercial. You mentioned it. Buffer's more recognizable than Canelo. Canelo fought, I believe, this past weekend. Yes. I didn't watch it. I didn't go on to zone. It was not on my radar because I have it no idea how anybody would find out what are the numbers for how many people watched uh, Canelo Alvarez this past weekend. I'm not even sure that DAZN knows that. Here's my question, though. Who are the DAZN guys? What was their business model going into this? And where the hell did they come up with nearly $400 million to sign Canelo? Money that, by the way, I'm guessing they weren't outbidding HBO. I, I'm guessing HBO wasn't at 350 and these guys were at 375 It sounds like they were bidding against themselves. I'm just wondering who raised how much to do what and to, to almost $400 million for Canelo Alvarez. That's insane. Good Scott, for him. Do you understand the venture capital world? Actually, thankfully, I, I've gotten quite the education in the past about 18 months to two years. But what I, what I don't know about the zone is, and I understand venture capital can go crazy, but what were they selling prior to getting Canelo? What were you know, they? They, um, they exist in China. Uh, they apparently have, and I didn't know, they apparently have an involvement in various other sports, uh, uh, MMA. Uh, I believe they have a soccer involvement too. Uh, they have created enough in the way of sheer numbers in their relatively early going that venture capital interests saw the potential. Uh, a boxing promoter from England named Eddie Hearn wound up with reportedly more than a billion dollars in his pocket to uh, advance the cause of DAZN in attracting boxers. Uh, Eddie Hearn's great calling card, which is very meaningful, is that he promotes Anthony Joshua. Anthony Joshua is seen, uh, despite what happened with Deontay Wilder and uh, Tyson Fury a couple of weeks ago in Los Angeles, for most of the global boxing audience, Anthony Joshua is seen as the legitimate heavyweight champion. He's a guy who uh, he could fight you and possibly draw 70, 80,000 people to Wembley Stadium in London. Uh, so he's an enormous economic attraction young enough at 27 or 28 that there's a potentially long arc attached to all that. By the way, the heavyweight division is now quite competitive, and one of the people who might wind up fighting Anthony Joshua in a mega fight is another Englishman named Tyson Fury, who has a highly controversial and colorful image. That would be a global event of enormous impact. It's not out of the question that the venture capitalists who put a billion dollars into DAZN could get all their money back on one fight. It's not at all out of the question. So um, these are the things you have to understand within the global alchemy of boxing to begin to get an idea as to why an organization like DAZN could seem to come out of nowhere and suddenly be a, 
I'm not going to say dominant because ESPN's very powerful. Al Heyman's attachments to Fox and uh, Showtime remain in place, etc. But a a very powerful player in the world of boxing television. And and to go back to a central point that I haven't quite gotten to yet, HBO is not a number two or number three type enterprise. HBO is a number one type enterprise. Okay, whatever the network does. It needs to be seen as the very best and the most important. So once you get to a point where it's debatable, not just that it isn't, but even if it's debatable, then the raison d'etre, so to speak, for HBO has gone out the window. We only do what we're going to be number one at doing. Uh, and it, it looked very difficult for us to retain our position as number one in boxing. So I totally understand, and I have said this publicly in various places, you put me in the corporate suite uh, wearing an executive hat and ask me whether I continue to try to sustain the boxing franchise in the face of what they were facing, I think I make exactly the same decision that our executives made. Our and we, two words you've just used. So you said at the end of the broadcast, I may not call a fight again. It's possible. Yeah, it's possible. But most people who are Jim Lampley fans would say, so we our, are you staying with HBO in some capacity going forward for the foreseeable future? I issued a closing statement or not a closing statement, but a, uh, I issued a, uh, a brief statement for media at the, at the moment that the official announcement was made a few months ago that um, HBO was leaving the boxing franchise behind. And that statement was, my 30-year love affair with HBO continues. Uh, I will remain in place. Now, does that mean that I'm going to be on the air doing television shows, uh, the kind of thing that you are accustomed to seeing Jim Lampley do for 44 years? Not necessarily. It means I have a first-look production deal and the right to uh, attempt to produce meaningful programs for the sports division. It means I have a relationship within which I can certainly present a dialogue to produce meaningful programs for the entertainment division as well. Uh, it means I have deep, powerful, abiding, and enduring friendships with the people who run the network and uh, who are most important in governing its destiny. It means that they all recognize that I am someone who is devoted to the best interests of HBO and who didn't allow my own um, personal interest to stand in the way of supporting this particular public departure from boxing. So all those things are part and parcel of um, of me saying to you at this moment, the only thing I know for certain about my destiny is that I work for HBO and, and I will continue to do so. Let me ask you this. Hypothetical. Um, DAZN comes to you. Showtime comes to you. ESPN comes to you. Any executive would say Jim Lampley is available to call fights. I want Jim Lampley's voice on my television or on my streaming service. Uh, when Dick Emberg became the play-by-play -play man of the Padres, the Padres were horrible. But Dick Emberg's voice made it sound like the World Series. So your voice can make any fight sound like the heavyweight championship of the world in the greatest heyday of the heavyweight division. So my question is, if somebody wanted you to call a fight, are you available? No. At this moment, I'm not available to call fights for anybody else, nor do I have any 
particular desire uh, at this point to call fights for anybody else. And, and I, don't, I don't really know what circumstances it would take for me to want to call fights for anybody else. And one of the reasons for that, a very important reason for that, is that I described to you how the landscape is being cut up by all of these existing television, te television entities, more of them than ever before. And, and a part of that process is that they are creating boundaries and uh, borders within the boxing talent landscape that will make it harder and harder and harder for anybody to put together the kinds of fights I called. I don't believe anyone is going to get 30 years of calling the kind of catalog of fights that I called because I don't believe any television entity is going to achieve the kind of dominance over the talent landscape that HBO and to a lesser degree Showtime have had during that particular uh, period of time. And, and the graphic example that I use all the time now is you've heard of Terrence Crawford, and as I mentioned, he's seen by most as one of the two top fighters in the world, along with Vasily Lomachenko, and Terrence Crawford's a welterweight. And another welterweight, who is seen as one of the top five pound-for-pound fighters in the world now, a rising, charismatic, uh, potentially really glamorous American fighter, is Errol Spence. Now, within their generation, at this moment, at the peak of their powers, Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence are Ray Leonard and Tommy Hearns. But are they going to fight each other? Right now, it appears not likely. Their competing business interests keep them away from each other rather than pushing them toward each other. So until I could see some place or entity within the boxing world where I'm pretty assured that Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence would fight each other two or three times to satisfy the audience the way Hearns and Leonard did, and I could go through various other examples to match that, I don't see who's going to create the desire or incentive for me to go back to calling fights. If I want to go call fights, I want to call them at the same level at which I called them for 30 years. And to, to go back and call fights in a situation where the opportunity to make those fights is compromised, not all that attractive to me. Okay, so at what point in your career, and I admire this so much about you, and I, I, to me, you know, mentor is one thing as a broadcaster, but what I love about you is, and I respect so much, and I so follow in your footsteps, is knowing to be, be a business person in, in your broadcast career. So when people hear you say, oh, I don't even want to call fights anymore unless I get to call the biggest and the best fights, it's not like your career is over because your business has been ongoing, but most people just see you as a boxing announcer. They don't realize how busy you are. People say to me all the time, well, don't you have time all day until you go on the air at three o'clock? And I'm like, if you saw what I did from six o'clock in the morning until I actually got to a radio station, you'd have no idea that I'm working on all kinds of other shit. When did you become a business guy? Instead of just Jim Lampley, the guy on the sidelines of ABC Sports, or the guy doing the Olympic coverage. I started a production company in 1995. So I've been chasing um, production ventures for 23 years. And if you go look at my IMDb, you will see that I have produced feature films. I've produced documentary series for HBO. I've, uh, I've produced any number of, of things. Uh, and all of them are much lower profile than being the host of Boxing on HBO. And all of them are excruciatingly difficult enterprises. Uh, there are some times when my 
amazing wife, Deborah, will say to me, why in the world do you want to be a producer in that world? It, it so frequently involves you making a difficult trip from Del Mar to Los Angeles and sitting in rooms for hours and ultimately hearing people say no. Uh, and by and the way, changing roles too, because it's one thing when you walk into an HBO meeting or a boxing meeting and everybody's there like, holy shit, Jim Lampley's here. That's right. And now all of a sudden you're not Jim Lampley's superstar boxing announcer or even Jim Lampley who's been in a million movies on your own. You're walking in on the other side. Like, As a like I kiss ass all day long for money. That's the role you find yourself right. in. Trying to sell somebody on doing something that they may or may not want to do. Ultimately hearing a lot of no's, a majority of no's. Uh, in response to those entreaties. Yes, it, it's an entirely different trip, but I like it. Uh, I, li I like the stimulus for my brain. I like the challenge involved in that. And at the end of the day, um, you know, the word storyteller is becoming very trite in our society now. Everybody's a storyteller. I like to tell stories. I exactly. tell people stories. Everybody's you know, a storyteller. All sorts of people now identify the notion of storytelling as being important, et cetera. And some of it is just lying. Uh, but <laughs> I do think that by nature, I'm a storyteller. My grandmother was a storyteller. My mother was a storyteller. I can remember sitting in the kitchen for hours and listening to them spin yarns. When I go to a pitch meeting in Hollywood and tell somebody a 20-minute story trying to get them to see the idea of something on the screen, I am channeling my grandmother every single time. So um, it's natural for me. And, uh, and by the way, um, have the economic freedom to do it because I've been so privileged and so well taken care of uh, as a public face, as, as a broadcaster. But there are people around me who now believe that, okay, 44 years on the air have come to an end. It's not exactly clear when he's going to be on the air again. Jim is going to go into some kind of emotional trough at some point. And I really don't believe that's the case. I really don't. Uh, I, you know, I think if we get to the point where uh, I walk up to the maitre d' in the restaurant and he has absolutely no clue who I am and I get some crappy table in the back next to the kitchen. I'm okay with that. You know, <laughs> I really do believe that I don't have a problem losing the on-air persona. But of course, it's a question. So we'll see. Yeah, that's, that is an interesting thought. Um, so if boxing is no longer at HBO, is the fight game with Jim Lampley? Because you mentioned earlier... Also gone. Uh, I mean, the network, the network came to a very rapid decision that uh, if we're not going to be televising live fights, then no reason to compliment th their decision would be if we're not going to be televising live fights, there's no reason to spend the money for this particular kind of shoulder programming. Uh, my response slightly different would be if we aren't going to be televising live fights, where do I get the on air material for the shoulder programming? How do I create a 30 minute program uh, every month that people will want to watch? So there are problems on both sides of the border there. And I totally understand why the fight game has gone away. It was great fun. I'm glad I did it. It's it's a monument to me as a producer. And that's what I like best about it. But for now, we're not doing the fight game either. What is something you want to do then? If, if somebody said to you, Jim, um, you have the choice to do what you want to do. You, you can go on the air and do this. What is it that might motivate you to want to do something? Well, some of those ideas are so wild, they might seem, you know, like extreme to you. But um, I can give you one very clear example, which touches on a lot of the things we've been discussing. Uh, and, and that is a... 
proposed drama series for HBO, a proposed drama series built around the subject of the border and Mexican-American immigration. Uh, and that series has been in development at HBO, quote unquote, uh, for six years. And uh, the, the writer is an extremely decorated uh, Mexican author and screenwriter who has rewritten the pilot script three or four times. Uh, the network has indicated their tremendous interest in getting this done by paying him to rewrite the pilot script three or four times, etc. cetera. Uh, various obstacles have emerged along the way, and that's why the word development is often attached to the word hell uh, <laughs> that, that follows it. This has been a perfect form of development hell, and the six years of development hell have only um, increased and, uh, and amplified my enormous desire to get this thing on the air. And that's just one. That, wait, um, you want to produce that or you want to be a character within the series or a host oh, of no, some no, sort? No, no, no. I just want to be the executive producer. Okay, got it. I so want then, to be the, I want to be the, you know, guiding overall, uh, storyteller who's, who's helping a great two hour screenwriter understand and appreciate how to write a sequential drama. Uh, some, have ex some have succeeded in that enterprise and some have not. And at the end of the day, some of that comes down to how skillful is the producer in helping the writer to understand the reality of what he's doing. So far, I haven't succeeded. How about, um, I mentioned Dick Emberg's name because we're almost at a year where Dick has been gone. And Dick was another just great mentor and friend and champion of mine. And... I a think, great guy who took my chair at NBC's golf telecast in 1994 <laughs> uh, when, when uh, a person with whom I had a wildly up-and-down relationship, Dick Ebersol, removed me from being host of golf uh, at uh, NBC in 1994. So Dick succeeded me in that chair very much the way I succeeded Barry Tompkins at HBO. And by the way, we were good friends. And, and remain good friends. And, and Dick would come back to CBS and he would do an essay about the NCAA basketball tournament. Or um, he would do something with ESPN about Wibbledon. Or, or, or I'm just trying to think of other examples. He would go back and do, um, oh, uh, he would do some Olympic stuff as well. I'm just wondering, like, does that interest you? Would you, as someone of your experience who's been and seen so much, particularly in Olympics, as a historian, as an essayist, as a storyteller, would that be something that you would find interesting? Obvious answer is yes. The single thing you would most expect me to do if you listened to this whole conversation on the podcast and said, okay, what is Lampley going to do? Uh, you would come to the intelligent conclusion, well, with everything he's talking about and what he's got going, probably he's going to produce sports-related documentaries for HBO. And I have three or four of those ideas that we're dealing with and uh, exploring uh, within my company right now. So, yes, absolutely, there are uh, a variety of very meaningful topics uh, that I could uh, help to present on HBO within the new storytelling uh, role of the sports department, and I plan to do that. This has been great, by the way. I really appreciate this because I think that everybody saw you on air give your farewell I didn't know this until I looked it up on YouTube. Actually, Deborah sent me a link and said, you should check this out. And what was really interesting was when the cameras went off, there was a lot of media around you. And we got to see something that people never see. 
And I don't want to make it seem like it humanized you so much more. It's not like that. It was just a behind the scenes look at something we don't normally see, which was you get off the air and now you're wiping the makeup off your face, or at least that's what it looked like to me. You couldn't have been that. Yes, I was wiping the makeup off my face. So you're cleaning your face off. It might've been a tear or two, but yes, mostly I was wiping makeup off. But you're, but this is all being caught on YouTube. Everybody can watch. This is, this is what happens when Jim gets off the air, right? He wipes the makeup off of his face and immediately someone throws a question your way. Cause it's almost like a, it seemed anyway, the way I was watching, it looked like kind of a weird press conference impromptu, by the way, not like you were standing at a podium and somebody threw a question your way and, and you had such a moment of reflection, like immediately, like you took the mic off, you took the earpiece out, you, you wiped the makeup off. There seemed to be a ton of people around you and it was immediate reflection. Have you watched this on YouTube yet? Yeah, I have. I've seen it. And, um, and it was very interesting because before the evening began, I had told my wife, Deborah, um, in a lot of instances, at the end of a fight telecast, people come to ringside, we're very accessible, they line up. Uh, a lot of them probably are web-type media, you know, bloggers, whatever, et cetera, et cetera, who will hold out tape uh, players and ask me for uh, an interview, ask questions. Uh, the bulk of them are fans who want a selfie, that kind of thing. Um, and sometimes I'm, I don't want to say brusque, but sometimes I'm pretty efficient about <laughs> doing just a little bit here and there and then getting out of there, which everybody understands. I've been working for hours and, uh, you know, we, we, we want to leave. Uh, and I had told Deborah before that night, uh, tonight, everybody gets what they want. You know, if, uh, if there are 300 people who want selfies tonight, they're all going to get them. And, and Deborah had agreed that that was a good idea. And, uh, and then what I'd forgotten was that uh, my uh, 31-year-old daughter, Victoria, who lives in Los Angeles, and her husband were coming to the fight, and that was very special. Uh, and Deborah, who is magical in the way that she supports my life, arranged it in all in such a way that when I finished calling the last fight, and got up from the announced position to go to the camera to make that closing statement that you've already talked about, the first face I saw was my daughter sitting behind me at ringside in a place where normally she wouldn't be sitting, something that Deborah had arranged. And that was, you know, an emotional tweak. That was, wow, this is amazing. Hi, Victoria, da-da-da. And then I go to the camera and do my thing. So now I get to the, the, uh, the finish of the telecast, and as you describe, I'm standing there, I'm wiping makeup off, and they're probably... There are probably 50 people who are leaning in, and some of them have microphones and tape players, and some of them are just fans, and some of them are people with their uh, cell phones rolling, etc. And after a, a minute or two of silence, this guy asked me a question. And I believe the question was something like, what's on your mind right now? What are you thinking about? It was very open-ended. And there's probably a 20-second pause before I begin speaking. And in those 20 seconds, I'm thinking a lot of different things. Michael and Victoria want to go to dinner. I told Deborah that everybody would get their moment here. <laughs> These aren't real media. These are, you know, personal or web-related media. But maybe the guy really is a reporter, et cetera, et cetera. And what is it that I didn't just say on camera that, that I could say here? And everybody is operating from this base of, oh my gosh, your on-camera career has just come to an end. 
How does that feel? And I felt like what was most important to say was that um, if you go back and look at the whole picture and size it all up, the 44 years of on-camera were an accident. That was not what I was intending to do. What I was intending to do back when I was in graduate school at the University of North Carolina was to do what I'm about to attempt to do, to be an executive producer, a decision maker, uh, a behind-the-scenes force in the industry. That was always the goal. And, and it was only because of a, uh, a unique talent hunt and a bizarre gyration in my life that I wound up doing these 44 years on the air. So it's all an irrational gift. It's all something that I never could have foreseen, that I didn't seek, uh, and that became my identifying mark for all of those 44 years. And I really am anxious for people not to think that I just died in public. Mm -hmm. uh, I want people to understand that uh, I had a spectacular wave that I surfed for a long, long time, but getting off the wave doesn't mean that I died in public, you know? And, uh, and I'm still very, very excited and motivated and happy uh, about my life. So that was what I tried to portray in that, I don't know, minute and a half monologue or two minute monologue that I delivered at ringside. And then once I had finished all of that, I thought to myself, okay, that's good enough. Now I don't need to do the 200 selfies. <laughs> and now I can actually be polite to my daughter and my son-in-law and, you know, put my arm around Deborah and gracefully walk away from ringside without somebody feeling that I unwarrantedly cheated them out of their moment. So it, it was a win-win uh, in a lot of different ways. And uh, I wasn't sure at first that I should answer. But when I opened my mouth and I answered and I let it come out, and it truly was stream of consciousness, uh, I went to dinner and, and sat down and thought that was good. I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, that that little addendum to the process took place because if anything, there was even more me in that than there had been in the ringside goodbye. You know, I just got a huge compliment in the New York Daily News over the weekend, and the essence of the compliment was he said goodbye for a 45-year franchise, and he didn't make it about him. That was the highest compliment I could get, because the whole goal was not to make it about me. And, and then at ringside, afterward, alone, in front of the 50 people who were leaning over the rope, then it's okay for it to be about me. And that's what I did. I'm going to end it right here, because we can keep going on and on. Next time we do, can we do this again? Sure. Next, this was just about timeliness, you know? This, yeah, this is about the, that moment. Next time we got to talk about other stuff. Because <laughs> seriously, next time we have to talk about... You want to hear about the whole bloody 44 years? Well, <laughs> there, 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 are there are stories that I know that I, if you'll share them, they're spectacular. By the way, these are the, the stories. Those are the movies. Those are the documentaries. That's all the stuff you want to do now on HBO. Yeah. The stuff you've already lived. Well, yeah, you know that that's true. Is, uh, you know, somebody said to me the other day, "Well, someone should do a documentary about your life." And of course, my first my first response was, "Oh, come on, you know that's crazy." Uh, I'm I'm a reporter. I'm a broadcaster. I'm I'm somebody who stands between the story and the public. But I I, I think if you've had enough unusual experiences and, and enough accidents have happened in your life, then it's possible to get to a point where people want to say, hmm, 
I'd like to hear that story about you. So I, I'm not shy about it. I'm not bashful about I'd it. I'd like to tell it a little bit better because, or a little bit deeper, I should say, because um, everybody who listens to you will say, gosh, Jim Lampley, star broadcaster, guy's been in movies. Now I'm hearing about his production career. I didn't even know about that. What a perfect life he must have. <laughs> you know, it was interesting. Do you see Creed 2? I haven't. Okay. Creed 2 is like an introduction to my new life because... Uh, there are three fights in the movie and the first fight is called by Max Kellerman and Roy Jones and I'm not involved so quite a number of my friends went to see Creed 2 and texted from the theater oh my god you hit the floor uh, you know you don't seem to be in this da, 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 da. and I had a vague sense that that was what they had done and of course the way they make it look is all right Lampley calls the last two fights so those are at a slightly higher level than the first fight which is called by Max and Roy but when I went to see the movie, to watch that first fight with the on-camera shots of Max and Roy and not hearing my voice, I thought, wow, this is good preparation. <laughs> this is orientation <laughs> for what life is about to be. And then they helped me out with the two fights that, uh, that closed the show. Uh, but, you know, everything changes. Life goes on. I'm ready. So as you can tell... I have a real love for Jim and and not just his broadcast career, but very much his life. I said, you know, next time we'll talk about other stuff. When I say other stuff, drugs, booze, business, divorce, kids, real life. I mean, the real stuff that Jim Lampley is equally as eloquent when he speaks about not just when it comes to sports. So I thought it was really interesting how Jim said, you know, so many people thought, well, Jim Lampley signed off from HBO. That's the end of that. And as he was saying, that's not the end of that. You know, Jim Lampley's business life and career was set up because he had a brilliant broadcasting career, but he was ambitious enough along the way and probably like me, couldn't sit still for two seconds that he wanted more. And producing, telling stories like he talked about, an important part of that. Again, I got to just thank everybody who who listens, who downloads, who shares. Thank everybody who goes to my website, scottkaplanmedia.com, which is where you can find all 45 of the episodes from 2018. Uh, for everybody that follows on Twitter, at Scott Kaplan, or on Instagram, at Scott Kaplan. For those of you that have helped me all year long, and if you've gotten to this point of the podcast, you know who you are. Help me, helping me build something interesting and different, unique and fun with this platform sided that we've been building. That, that is getting into the game. That, that's Jim Lampley um, has a successful broadcast career, but also wants to produce stuff and wants to um, go to those meetings and, and, you know, gets excited by the nose, even though he's trying to break down the door to get yeses. It's getting in the game. It's, it's having another ball in the air. It's having people call it a side hustle now. It's, it's finding a way to say, I can't just rely on my job anymore. And so for those of you that have helped me this year test the, the platform, play with the software, help us come up with ideas and develop those ideas, for everybody that has been on Sided, thank you very much. Sided, S-I-D-E-D dot co. So that's it. That's, that's the end of the year here on the Scott Kaplan Solo Podcast. So much more coming in 2019. By the way, if you have ideas or um, people that you think would make for great interviews, definitely bring it. And you can uh, always find me on all the social platforms. 
Thank you to Alex Padilla, my radio producer, who uh, ultimately puts all of this together. Thank you to Allison Ratzlaff, who absolutely drives the podcast train. Without Allison and her energy and the push and the reminders and and helping with videos and everything else, without her, this this stuff never gets done. And of course, always thanks to people who sponsor this. You know, this, this is not this was not a. Um, a big money sell this year. Uh, it was an experimental thing. So people like Gorilla Movers at GorillaMovers.com or the Brigantine family of restaurants or Callaway Golf, those were people that said, we know you and we know you'll produce quality content and we know people will want to listen to it and we want to be a part of that. So thank you. Thank you to all the listeners, to the sponsors, to the, the people who make it all happen. And of course, lastly, like Jim was saying, you know, he got broken up when he thinks about the fighters. I'm not going to get broken up right now, but I'm going to say that thank you to the guests. Without the guests being willing to share their stories, so much of what we've all taken away from these stories this year, we wouldn't have. So thank you to all the guests. Have a great holiday season. Enjoy your family. Enjoy these holidays. Um, Get refreshed. Get renewed. Get ready for a new year. I know so many things that seem like bad things are going to pass And then we're going to be able to look forward and and have good things happening. So I wish nothing but peace and prosperity for everybody in the holiday season going into a new year. And thank you very much. Another great guest that was interviewed by Scott on the weekly solo podcast that on every Tuesday drops. Keep it locked and make sure after you listen, share the latest volume, tune in to the next edition.